Great. Good morning. How are we doing? Take your Bibles and turn to uh, Luke 9. We're going to be uh, in Luke 9 today. There are just 62 verses in Luke 9. We're going to focus on like nine of those, but we're going to kind of do a survey of the whole chapter. So I'd love to get a Bible, a copy of God's words into your hand. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. There's ushers coming up and down the rows. Uh, they will get a Bible to you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please just keep that as a gift from us. While we're getting settled and started, can I, can I just tell you something? If you've attended this church for any length of time, you've probably heard me say this phrase at some point. Frustration is born out of unmet expectations. Anybody heard me say that before? Like, like, I believe there's a lot of frustrations that are born out of unmet expectations. And along those lines, I really hate bad false advertising. Drives me crazy. Take a look at this next picture. That's just annoying, isn't it? You buy a nonstick pan, but you can't get the nonstick label off the nonstick pan. Like, there comes a point there where it just drives me crazy when a product promises something that it doesn't deliver. Go to the next picture. That pizza looks different than the pizza on the box. And you're like, man, that's going to be good. And then you get that. And there's just something when there is an expectation that is unfulfilled that causes frustration. And this is our last week in this series when God draws near. And um, all that we have tried to do in this series is let you see Jesus for who he is. If you think back on sermons and even what I'm teaching today, uh, I am going to do my best to say nothing profound. That's not hard for me. If you're here today visiting and you're like, well, maybe we should check out Harvest. Maybe that guy's got something profound to say. Um, you're out of luck. And uh, come next week, no promises, okay? But today, all I'm trying to do as we open Luke 9 is let you see Jesus for who he is. Because one of the things that I love about the gospel, it's not full of false advertising. Jesus speaks directly to how life really is. He reveals himself exactly for who he is. And we believe, and we believe this since the beginning of this church, the most important thing about our ministry is to allow people to see Jesus clearly. That's not this series thing. That is in the ethos. That is in everything that we do here. We had no ambitions for campuses or services or numbers when we started this church, how do we get people to see Jesus clearly? In essence, how do we expose people to the glory of God? There is no higher compliment than you can pay as pastors and elders and staff here that, hey, I came to this church and I sense God's spirit in that place. Man, we love that because we want people to have an encounter with Jesus because we believe when they see Jesus clearly, marriages are transformed, lives are transformed. There is powerful life change that takes place. And we can do everything right as a church, but if we're not letting you see Jesus clearly, nothing happens. So as we go through the text this morning and look at chapter 9 in Luke, just understand, this is what we are driving for, just to see Jesus clearly for who he really is. Now, to get there, I thought we'd do something a little bit different this morning. Um, we're just going to interpret by majority, okay? And here's what I need you to do. We're going to survey up to the passage that we're looking at. I'm going to show you several different stories that are in Luke 9, and I need you to vote after every story. If 
what we're talking about from the disciples' perspective. If it was a high point for them, give me the thumbs up. And if it was a low point, give me the thumbs down. Okay, can you guys do this? So if it was a good day, thumbs up. Bad day, thumbs down. High point, low point. Follow me through the different stories that we see in Luke 9. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Verse 1, I'm not going to read every verse, but what happens in verses 1 through 6 of Luke 9 is that Jesus um, calls his disciples together and gives them the power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And it says in verse 6, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. If you're a disciple, high point, low point. Okay, high point. You guys are on your game. Okay. To be able to preach the gospel and heal every disease. I think that's a high point for the disciples. Would you agree? Let's go to verse 10. Jesus, in verses 10 through 17, he feeds 5,000 people. He steals some kid's lunch. The disciples get it. And all of a sudden, he does this miracle where a whole crowd is fed. High point, low point. High point. Okay, I agree. You guys, are, you guys are clicking with me so far. Now, this story isn't in Luke 9, but I'm going to read it to you from Matthew because this is what happens immediately following feeding these masses. It says in Matthew 16, and the disciples reached the other side. They realized they'd forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In verse 7, and they began discussing it among themselves. We have brought no bread. High point, low point. That's kind of a low point. Jesus isn't even talking about bread. He has to pull them aside. He goes, it's not about the bread. Uh, by the way, I just fed 5,000 people. Like, I can handle the bread shortage problem. What he's saying is, hey, beware of the false teaching, not the shiniest moment for the disciples. Verses 21 and 22 Back in Luke 9, it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day he's going to be raised. He tells the disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. High point, low point. Yeah, I would, I would stay there. Low point. Following that low point, we read in... Um, uh, we read, let's see. Uh, we read very quickly from other passages in here. Let me find it in the text. I just lost my place for a second. Look at verse 18. Now it happened that he was praying with his disciples and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets of old is risen. Then Jesus turned to them and said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. Is that a high point or low point? I think that's a really big high point. Like there aren't any more important decisions that you will make in your entire life than deciding who Jesus is. Is he a good man? Is he a good example? Is he a moral teacher? Or is he the son of God? This is a high point for Peter. Look what happens next. We read this in Mark 8, 31 through 33. After Jesus tells, foretells his death in Mark 8, 31, it says, And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected. And in three days rise again. And in verse 32 it says, But, turning, uh, but Peter openly rebuked him. Good day or bad day when you rebuke Jesus? Yeah, it's probably, probably not a great day. And then it says, in turning aside and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Um, high point, low point when Jesus calls you Satan. <laughs> okay, so, so we've seen some pretty big highs, and now we're back into some pretty big lows. And then it says this. 
verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is indicating to his disciples that not only is he going to suffer many things and have to go to Jerusalem and die, but there's going to be a cost to them as well for following Jesus. High point, low point. Okay, I, I do all of that for a reason. Do you notice the extremes? Very, very quickly, up and down, highs and lows. That's the reality of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are going to be high moments. There are going to be low moments. There are going to be days where everything is great, and then there's going to be days where everything is hard. Please hear me on this. Jesus did not promise us as followers that we would have a life of ease and a life of comfort. He promised that we would have a life of his presence. That's the gospel. And there are going to be moments that we are in valleys and there are going to be other moments when we are on mountaintops, where we have mountaintop experiences. Anybody, do you know what I mean when I say mountaintop experience? You guys understand what I'm talking about? One of those moments that you wish would never end. Maybe it's a moment of accomplishment or all of a sudden this feeling that, man, this is where I would like to linger. I wish life was always like that. Can you guys think of mountaintop experience? Everybody got one? Okay, get one in your head, okay? Hold it there. We're going to use that as an example. Think of a mountaintop experience in your life. Okay? I was watching the NBA draft on Thursday night. I'm not a big NBA fan. I'm a kind of NBA fan because I'm a Chicago Bulls fan. And as a Chicago Bulls fan, you have a moment of excitement on the NBA draft and then you have a moment of excitement on the opening night of the season and then you just have a lot of crushing of your soul. So, so that's kind of what it's like. But as I was watching the NBA draft, it was interesting because they put the draft right after the NBA Finals. And if you watched any of the NBA Finals this year, you know that Toronto won. And there was this huge celebration. A Canadian team had never won the NBA title. This was a first for Toronto. So this is a euphoric moment for the city. It is a mountaintop experience. But before they can celebrate, before they get the trophy, before they get to the parade, before any of that happens, before their star player, the MVP of the series, Kawhi Leonard, can get off the court, He's interviewed by people, and here's what they're asking him. Hey, congratulations. What an incredible thing you've accomplished. Well, how do you feel? Man, this must be the greatest moment of your life. Where are you going to play next year? Are you going to stay in Toronto? Are you going to go somewhere else? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he's like, let me enjoy the moment for a minute. Just a minute. Let me enjoy it just for a second. Because here's a reality. The mountaintop experiences in your life don't last. Whatever you were thinking of, whatever you can look back on and remember as a mountaintop experience, it's different than the normal course of life. And some people get confused. They believe that the life of a follower of Jesus Christ should always be mountaintop or they spend their lives chasing mountaintop experiences. And mountaintop experiences are wonderful. But the reality is they don't last. A real mountaintop experience should give you resolve, should give you hope, and should sustain you through some of the darker times, through some of the valleys of our lives. The big idea this morning is this. It's glory is seen in glimpses. Life is battled in the trenches. Glory is seen in glimpses. Life is battled in the trenches. And what we're going to see in the passage that we're looking at today is Jesus is going to climb a mountain with his disciples 
And when they get to the top of this mountain, they're going to have an experience that I believe will profoundly change them for the rest of their lives. So we're going to be focused in now on starting in verse 28 through 36. Let me just work through this passage. Here's the first point. The reality, climbing mountains is difficult. The reality, climbing mountains is difficult. Do we have any mountain climbers in the room? Yeah, that's what I thought. Do you know why we don't have more mountain climbers? Because it's difficult, okay? Another practical reason, we live in Michigan. We'll, we'll count that one too, okay? But climbing mountains is difficult. I know these are you know, incredibly profound points, but hang with me for a minute. It says in verse 1, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John's and James and went up to the mountain to pray. One of the other translations, I believe it's in Matthew, says that they climbed a high mountain. There's debate over which mountain they're on. Church tradition says it was Mount Tabor. Many common or modern scholars say that it was Mount Hermon. Do you want my opinion? I couldn't care less. I don't care what the mountain's name was. And I kind of have this confidence that if God wanted us to know the name of the mountain, he probably could have gotten it into the Bible. We don't know the mountain. I don't think that that's the significant part of this. But the point is, Jesus is going to display himself on the top of the mountain after the disciples have followed him to climb it. Note it says, after eight days after these sayings. What were these sayings? These were Jesus saying that he was going to go die in Jerusalem, that Peter said, you are the Christ, that you've got to take up your cross, all of this. Think about Peter during these eight days. He had to be confused. Not sure that he signed up to carry his own cross and to follow his rabbi to his death. Not sure what he believed or fully understood when he left the Sea of Galilee and chose to follow him. But I've got to believe that this is somewhat of a change of plan. It is a mental adjustment. And in this season, he's got to be asking, God, I, I, don't, I don't understand. Like, like, what is going on? Eight days of that. But eight days later, he's climbing a mountain with Jesus. And I think here's the significant thing in that. He didn't quit following when he didn't understand. Sometimes mountaintops are birthed out of faithful obedience when we don't understand. And Peter was in one of those seasons where he's climbing a mountain following Jesus, but there had to be confusion based off what had been going on and what had been said just in the last eight days. It's funny, sometimes mountaintop experience like we're going to describe here don't actually happen at the high euphoric moments of our lives. There are sometimes where they actually happen in the valleys and we don't even recognize we're in one until we look back and say God used that in a miraculous way. But in this case, they are climbing the mountain. It's interesting. I read a book maybe 15 years ago. It's one of my favorite um, just nonfiction kind of books that I would read on vacation. It was written by one of my favorite authors, John Krakauer. It's called Into Thin Air. And it is an account of him being on an expedition climbing Mount Everest back in 1996. He was part of the crew that was climbing it. He was recording it, intending to write a book. What he didn't know was he was unintentionally going to be covering a tragedy that took place on Mount Everest. In 1996, on his expedition, eight climbers were killed and several others were stranded by a storm. People love to chase mountains. If you're a mountain climber climbing Mount Everest would obviously be the apex of achievement if that was your thing. 
It becomes an obsession to some people. I did a little bit of research. How much do you think it costs to climb Mount Everest? Any ideas? 30,000, 50 grand. There's actually a range. 15,000 is about the cheapest that you can climb it, and that's if you want to just go with some sketchy Nepalese company and they bring you up the mountain with a mule. I think that's, you can go that way. And then you can go up to about $100,000. The range is about 15 to 100. The average is 45. I think if you're willing to pay 100, they actually carry you up the mountain. How awesome is that? <laughs> but so, I mean, it's a, it's a significant financial commitment. It's not only that, it's a significant period of time. It's going to take you about two months to climb the mountain because you've got to get up to varying base camps at varying altitudes so that your body can adjust to the ever-decreasing levels of oxygen. Now, if you decide to climb Mount Everest, understand right now there's a lot of people trying to climb it. Can you guys see in the picture the line trying to get up to the summit? This year, and this is an older stat, there could be more now, but this was from May, nine people had already died in this climbing season climbing up Mount Everest, trying to reach this mountaintop experience. Assuming that you spend the money and take the two months and go on this expedition, how long do you think you're on top of the summit? Most less than an hour. Average is about 10 to 20 minutes. The longest that anyone has spent up there is 20 hours. Do you know why you don't stay on the summit? Because you're dying every minute you're up there. So it's a race to the top. It's a race back down. It's interesting. Um, before I was a pastor, I was a real estate developer in Chicago, and I had a partner. And uh, my partner's wife was really into mountain climbing. And she set a goal that she was going to be the woman that scaled the seven summits, the, high, the seven highest mountains on every continent in the least amount of time. So she got herself ready. She trained for several years. There was an enormous cost to this endeavor. And she set out one mountain, two mountains, Kilimanjaro in Africa and Antarctica and Denali or whatever the highest one is in Alaska and our continent. And her final summit was uh, Mount Everest. And uh, she climbed Mount Everest and she actually set the world's record for fastest climbing of all seven summits by a, by a female climber. She did it in about 21 months. She came home from that endeavor to a lost fortune a broken marriage, and an estranged family. Her record was broken by another woman three weeks later. It's the dangers of climbing mountains, chasing the mountaintop, experiencing, believing that that is the norm, not the exception. There's reasons for climbing mountains. Let me give you the first one. One of the reasons we climb mountains is so that we can see clearly. Again, back to our text. We'll pick it up in verse 29. It says, And as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. His appearance was altered. It basically says he went through a metamorphosis. He was changed. He was transformed. And his clothing became dazzling white. It's interesting. In Mark's gospel, which is Peter's account of this experience. Most believe that Peter was illiterate and Mark was basically transcribing Peter's letter. 
It says this, and Jesus was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Man, I love Peter. I have used Clorox on my shirts and they've never gotten as white as Jesus is right now. It was incredible. So Peter's trying to describe this transformation that has happened to Jesus and what he has seen, which is impossible for him to describe, is he has seen Christ revealed in full glory. By the way, I think sometimes order is important. Notice that he was willing to follow Jesus up the mountain, and then he saw Jesus revealed in full glory. He didn't see Jesus revealed in full glory, and then he was willing to climb the mountain. So on the mountain, he sees Jesus revealed in full glory. I believe as you think about whatever mountaintop experiences that you brought to your mind, I believe true mountaintop experiences are when we have an experience where we see the Lord clearly and we see the glory of our God and of Jesus Christ on full display and our Savior becomes elevated in our eyes. The Jesus that, Jesus, or the Jesus that Peter sees in this moment is how Jesus has existed in full glory from eternity past. Don't get fooled in these encounters with Jesus that he is solely what you see when he took human form. Philippians 2 says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man. The next time you see your Savior face to face, you will see him exactly how Peter saw him on the mountain. Glory fully displayed. He cloaked himself in humility, and sometimes we get confused. Well, he's kind of just like us. He's nothing like us. Isaiah, in the Old Testament, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, the prophet describes seeing Jesus Christ. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Speaking of this moment, John writes in chapter 12, verse 41, he said, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of Jesus. Jesus reigns and rules in glory. Revelation 21, 23 says, and the city has no need, speaking of heaven or new Jerusalem, it says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. As a church, we want you to see Jesus clearly for who he is. It's interesting. Not only do we see when we have a mountaintop experience that can sustain us through the valleys of life, Jesus for who he is, we see ourselves exactly for who we are too. Would you agree? In contrast, Luke uh, 9 verse 34, it says that the disciples were afraid as they saw the cloud of the glory of God come down. There's different things going on in this text, and I'm not going to dissect it for you. First, they see Jesus displayed in full glory, and then they see the glory of God coming down in a cloud. I would say in both cases, can we just kind of say that we're seeing the full glory of God on display? I could take you through a survey of the Old Testament and New Testament, and every time somebody sees God's glory in full display, they get low fast. In Isaiah 6, 
It says, Isaiah fell like a dead man and said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. John, one of same John that's on this mountain, will see the glorified Christ again described in Revelation 1. It says, He got down as if he were dead. That's who we are in relation to who God is. But can I give you some really good news as the church today? Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us, speaking of us, the, the saved, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, there is a holy God that when he is on full display, makes men tremble. But the good news today is we can approach that holy God with full confidence, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and what he did for us. That's our God. And when we have a mountaintop experience, when we see God for who he truly is, we recognize who he is, we recognize who we are, and it creates a thankfulness and a gratitude for what he has done. So first reason we climb is to see clearly. Here's the second one, to be encouraged. It says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Seems like reading through the New Testament, the disciples needed a lot of sleep, don't you? Side point, I digress. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Okay. The glory that they saw, the glory of, of God on display on this mountain, this is the same glory that Israel saw when they left Egypt and were wandering through the wilderness headed towards the promised land. We can read back in Exodus that the glory of God was on display for his people during their travels in the wilderness. It says that he appeared as a cloud by day to lead them and as a pillar of fire by night. That is the glory of God on display. In Exodus 33 verses 3 through 4, because the people are grumbling and complaining in the wilderness and God has had enough, he declares this to Moses he tells Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. goes on and says, Moses pleaded with the Lord. He said, if your presence will not go with me, don't, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people from the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. Man, I love this. And I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Without God's glory, we're nothing. With God's glory, we have everything. The presence of the Lord is the thing that we strive for in this church and as followers of Jesus Christ. It's the thing that you cling to. And the really good news is, as a follower of Jesus Christ, he says he'll never leave us or forsake us. It's good news, right? Goes on and tells us that in Exodus 34, as the people built the tabernacle in the wilderness, we read when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets and the testimony of the Lord, his face shone 
because he had been in the presence of the glory of the Lord. The people were afraid of him because his face reflected the glory of the Lord. Exodus 40 tells us that when they built the tabernacle, that the Lord filled the tabernacle with his glory. In 2 Chronicles 7, when Solomon completed the temple in Jerusalem, we read, as soon as Solomon finished his dedication prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the, filled the Lord's house. We're told that when Moses would go and meet with God in the tent of meeting, that the cloud of God's glory would hang over the tent of meeting. How awesome would it be if God's cloud of glory hung over our church? Hey, what's the weather forecast at Harvest Spring Lake? Cloudy every day. How great would that be? Because, but they had visual displays of his glory. But I got to tell you, if I keep going through the Old Testament, tracking this glory thing, we get to Ezekiel 10 and 11. And Ezekiel explains that because the people continued to be a stiff-necked people, because they worshipped other gods, because they wouldn't follow God's commands, because they were rebellious, Ezekiel 10 and 11 describes that the glory of God left the temple and departed from the nation of Israel. There's a word for that. That word is Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. And for the next 600 years, the glory of the Lord is not seen in the nation of Israel. It has departed for 600 years. And then, in a little sleepy suburb outside of Jerusalem, on a hillside to shepherds, shepherds cry out, and the glory of the Lord surrounded us. Jesus is born, the glory is returned. And this is what the disciples see on this moment. The glory of God once again in full display. But it's not just God's glory. Verse 30 says that Moses and Elijah were with them. Now, I, it's unclear to me how Peter, James, and John knew that the two men talking to Jesus were Moses and Elijah. Maybe Jesus explained that to them later. But as the text was, they just kind of know that it's Moses and Elijah. Those guys have been dead for a long time. Maybe they have name tanks. I don't know how that works. Okay. Maybe you wear lanyards in heaven. I doubt it. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Why are they there? Well, the text indicates that they appeared and spoke of Jesus' departure. That word departure literally means Jesus' exodus, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Do you know why Moses and Elijah were there? They were to encourage Jesus for what he was going to have to do as he went to Jerusalem, suffered in Jerusalem, and died for us in Jerusalem. You know you're on a mountaintop experience when people are encouraging you in your faith to continue through the mountains and through the valleys of life to follow Jesus. Here's a third reason we climb mountains. The first to see clearly, the second to be encouraged, the third to set resolve. Verse 32, now, Peter and those who were with him, we looked at this, were heavy in sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw two men who stood with them. Jesus is on full display in his glory with Moses and Elijah through this series, and if you read through the Gospels, I can take you to miracle after miracle after miracle, from water into wine, 
to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of those miracles put God's glory and power on full display. But those are about what Jesus did. This is a miracle about who Jesus is. They didn't see a display of power. They saw a revelation of who Jesus is. He carried God's attributes in human form, but now they see the glory of Jesus on full display. When I talk about setting resolve, I'm curious if the disciples ever thought about what they saw on the mountain later in life. Do you think this ever came back to mind? Do you think is all three of these men would live the rest of their life? Peter will be crucified upside down. John will be boiled, then exiled to an island called Patmos. James also will be a martyr for his faith. I got to believe, thinking back on the glorified Jesus on full display had to be a motivation. This transfiguration story, it's interesting, you can read about it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's not in John. And if John was on the mountain, wouldn't you think that he would like want that right in the dead center of his gospel? But he doesn't tell you the transfiguration story. I wonder why that is. You think he forgot? I don't think so. It's interesting if I turn your attention, you don't have to turn there, but to John 1. Look at how John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 4, in Christ or in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Oh, I think John writes about the transfiguration on almost every page of his gospel. Because he is inspired by the revelation. You don't leave seeing Jesus Christ for who he really is unchanged. If you're here and you're saying, oh, I think I've seen, I think I know the gospel story, I think I know who Jesus is, but it hasn't changed me, you haven't seen him yet. I believe that the disciples in seeing the glorified Jesus had their resolve set to do the things that God would later call them to do. I also believe this, in meeting with Moses and Elijah, actually it helped to put steel to firm Jesus' resolve to accomplish the things he was called to do. It says at the end of Luke 9, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He left the mountain and he basically says, nothing is going to stop me from accomplishing what God sent me to do. Though Jesus was fully God, he was also human. We see him wrestle. Please take this cup if it's your will, but if it's not, you know, he he wrestled in human form and he was encouraged by these two men. It set his resolve to be on the mountaintop. And then here's the fourth point. We climb mountains to see clearly to be encouraged to set resolve and then to leave. Verse 33, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, now Peter's always saying things that are pretty easy to make fun of. Would you agree with that? And, and I want to give him a free pass here. I want to think the best that I can of Peter, but the text doesn't allow me because the actual text says he didn't know what he was talking about. But here's what I think could have been happening Most scholars believe that this transfiguration happened about six months before Jesus was crucified. 
Jesus was crucified in the spring of the year. This would have been the prior fall. And during the fall, there are three festivals on the Jewish calendar. And the last festival is called the Feast of the Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths. And during that ceremony, what happens is, even to this day, those who celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles will move out of their house, they'll live in a tent for seven days in remembrance of Israel being led by their God through the wilderness. And it could very well be that during the Transfiguration was actually during the Feast of Tabernacles and Peter had this brainstorm up on the mountain saying, what could be better than celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles than with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? This is awesome. Or maybe... Peter was thinking differently. Maybe he was on the mountain saying, I'm not really for the Jerusalem plan. (laughs) I really am kind of enjoying seeing Jesus for who he truly is. And even above that, this whole Moses thing and Elijah is pretty awesome as well. Why don't we just stay here, abandon that plan? Either way, we don't know what he was thinking and the text is pretty clear. He didn't know what he was thinking. But here's what we know. He didn't want to leave. He wanted to linger on the mountain. Verse 34, and he he says, He was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Peter, he told you he had to go to Jerusalem to die. Peter, he said, take up your cross. That is what is going to happen. Listen to him. Verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything about what they had seen. I think if I had been on the mountain, I would have told everyone what I had seen. We get clarity from Mark's account in verse 9 of Mark 9. It says, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So this was a secret. Peter, James, John, Jesus, nobody talks about this until I've risen from the dead. Hey, question, how do we know this story today? Because he's risen from the dead. And after he rose from the dead, you couldn't stop them from telling this story. You would have to kill these three men to stop them from talking about the glory of their Savior. It's interesting. Why can't we stay on a mountain? It says this. Look at verse 37 and 38. Look what follows. In verse 37 it says, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. You can go on and read, They heal a boy with an unclean spirit. In verse 43, Jesus is again foretelling that he has to go to Jerusalem and die. By the time you get to verse 46, the disciples are bickering amongst themselves who are the greatest By the time you get to verse 51, a Samaritan village rejects Jesus and then there's a whole other narrative starting in verse 57 on the cost of following Jesus. Here's why we come down from the mountain. Because there's work to be done. God's placed us on mission. There is the gospel to be proclaimed. And we go back to the valley and we work our way through a world that is severely broken because of sin. We're not called out of the world as followers of Jesus. We're called to live in a broken world as followers of Jesus Christ to be a light for the gospel. 
That's what we're called to be. And life is not going to always be easy. And you're not always going to live on top of the mountain, but we're on mission in this season. But there is a day approaching soon and very soon where we will once again see our Savior revealed in full glory. And the valleys and the mountains will be leveled and we will live in the presence of our Savior forever. I don't know what season you're in. I don't know if you're like on a mountaintop right now or if you're in a valley. I don't know what season you're in. Maybe you don't even know what season you're in. I don't even know. Millennials. I, I, dig, I digress. Here's the question. Let the truth about Jesus and who he is be the thing that you focus on on those mountaintops and let the reality of who Jesus is be your focus in the valleys. Jesus has called us to be followers. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, we do not lose heart. Though our outer body is wasting away, our inner body is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would find us faithful in all seasons. And Father, we desire more than all things, your presence, your glory. Father, as we have looked at all of these encounters of how you have approached people and reached out to people and forgiven people and shown grace to people and confronted people and healed people, don't let us lose sight that you are King of kings and Lord of Lord for all time, for all glory. And whether we declare you God or not, what is, is, and you are God. Father, help us to see you as you truly are. It's in your great name we pray. Amen.